0: Good evening. The economy sputters and contracts. What does that mean for America's children? Putin meets the United Nations chief. Biden is accused of a proxy war against Russia. An American comes home, Harvard slaves and pot and pups. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, April 28, 2022. The federal government reported the United States gross domestic product shrank during the first three months of 2022. Economic activity declined at an annual rate of 1.4 percent, a sharp reversal from last year when growth was the strongest since 1984. Although there were technical reasons for the decline and Democrats maintain the various disruptions of the past two years have hurt the reliability of traditional economic indicators, the decline is a speed bump to President Joe Biden's upbeat message the economy is cruising along, giving Republicans a direct line of attack. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell expressed his fear of runaway inflation.
1: Runaway inflation is crushing working American families on Democrats watch. The share of Americans who say the economy is our most important problem hasn't been this high since the last time Democrats controlled the White House. Just this morning, we got a devastating quarterly GDP report. The economy actually shrank 1.4% over the last three months. No longer are Democrats just presiding over a disappointing recovery. Now they've thrown the recovery into reverse, and we're actually going backward. We haven't seen inflation this bad in more than 40 years. Month after month of skyrocketing prices. It's exactly what everyone knew would happen if Democrats dumped $2 trillion in printed money on an economy that was already ready for a comeback. But Democrats ran through the far left spending, so working Americans are paying dearly.
0: That's the Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell. Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package was supposed to propel the economy to new heights that Democrats could then sell to voters in this year's midterm elections. But contradictory data has weakened the clarity of Biden's pitch and emboldened Republican criticism. With the failure of Biden's massive spending bill, temporary policies like the expanded child tax credit are ending, and families that were supported by small but regular monthly checks are finding themselves out on their own. As child poverty rates returned to previously high levels just over one in three adults now report difficulty paying for the usual household expenses the highest level since 2021 food insecurity has also returned to its highest level at 11.2 percent since early 2021 sean fremstead is a senior policy fellow at the center for economic and policy research he says it's clear that corporate greed is hitting the working class head on
2: So the interesting thing is there's one, I don't know why, one Republican, Mitt Romney, who he's actually supportive of doing a real child allowance. There's folks like that. The whole idea that the Republican Party was a populist kind of family values party that wanted to give tangible real benefits to working class families, to low income families, that was pretty much a scam that's not where they're really interested in in terms of a legislative party it's maybe some of the intellectuals or whatever out there will give lip service to that but it's not happening and so you have we're back to republicans wanting austerity continuing a lot of the trump things like keeping hardline
0: immigration policies in place and a european right-wing neo-fascist type of party so the United States is a very different country, and our fascism does not play out the same way. It's for sure. This it's is a. Hard a hard I, hard. I was just
2: going to say on that front. I was looking at the Marine Le Pen, who is a horrible, horrible neo-fascist politician, especially on these kind of nationalist issues, Islam, whatever you name it, but. On most of her, you know, most of the sort of social policy stuff, she's not for outlawing abortion. She's pretty good on working, kind of just making sure workers have at least some power and get some benefits. So it always comes down to race since the Civil yeah, War I in this country. I think that's right. It's race, the real, everybody should be married, patriarchy should reign. That, I think that's pay very much own, the, the... Pay your own way. Yeah. yep, yeah, yep, yeah, Exactly. The thing I would say too, it's pretty I thought for a while we were over a hump on some of these social issues like, you know, marriage promotion. It's coming back because we see it with the attack on trans kids and LGBT will be welfare. I think we're we're kinda in for all of this. And it's really unfortunate too because that has come into this debate over the child tax credit, where you have the main reason Joe Manchin said he wouldn't support it. So this is the one Democratic senator, the so called democratic senator who kept all of this from happening. He was the the holdout vote. And he said it was because he wants people to work and they shouldn't get benefits if they're not working. You see that divide still continuing here. Now, maybe a little better than in the 90s in the Clinton era where there was like ten joe mansions of the Democratic Party in the the Senate. But one is enough to block things up when Mm. things are as close in the Senate as they are today.
0: What do we do about this? What's the next step? What's going to happen next? What's this about? We're going to have to continue to fight for this sort of thing. You see...
2: An interesting thing is more progressive states, California, Massachusetts are just going ahead and they're doing these kind of policies. They're doing things like creating child allowance type programs or expanding child care. So I think that's really valuable. The other factor here is inflation really dominating politics right now. We have to be careful not to let it overtake everything. We don't want to see a clampdown on the economy that just pushes us back into a big recession. One would hope some of the politicians some of the Joe Manchin types in Washington would come to their senses and do some things to actually invest in families that would have benefits. Whether we see that, it's really hard to tell, I think. It's a very disappointing time right now in Washington, D.C., very disappointed about where we've ended up with the Biden administration.
0: We have austerity here now coming down the pike. But what's strange is that Eric Adams is they're forcing him to spend more money than he wants to because of the more of a fear of protests has more effect here.
2: The power that I hope will be unleashed by this is labor power, union power. That has to go somewhere, that desire for a better life. That's what you're seeing in places like the Amazon drive, the Starbucks drive. Too early to say whether that will continue to ripple through. But I think that is the most exciting thing happening right now. And it's something that a lot of these issues, the failure to pass build back better, at least some of where we're at in inflation, they get back to the fact that there's not enough power. Labor doesn't have enough power. And so capital is taking excess profits, is killing legislation that would help workers. That's really the root of the problem
0: here. Sean Fromstead is a Senior Policy Fellow at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. According to NPR, in December 2021, when the last child tax credit payment was made, 3.7 million children were kept out of poverty. But in January 2022, 3.7 million children fell into poverty. The Urban Institute says a child tax credit would reduce child poverty by more than 40 percent in a typical year, reduce child poverty by at least 30 percent in every state and 50 percent in 11 states, and reduce child poverty for black children by more than 50 percent. And in international news, hundreds of university students took to the streets of Port au Prince to demand justice for the death of Azni Zidor, a twenty-seven year old woman who is the victim of gang violence that controls Haiti. The march started from the state university and headed towards Bois Verna, the place where the fifth year medical student was murdered. There, the citizens made moving messages and called on the country's authorities to assume their responsibilities in the face of the phenomenon of uncontrollable insecurity. Enough, enough. We must stop arming the bandits who kill students. We must stop the fearless bandits who impose their law throughout the country, were phrases that people shouted at the march. Over the last week, hundreds of families have fled the violence unleashed by armed gangs in Port-au-Prince and have taken refuge in schools, relatives' houses or in the streets. Near the u.s Embassy, for instance, people are camping in a city square, carrying their possessions and backpacks, and preparing their food in the open air. And back to the war in Ukraine still dominating the news. President Biden asked Congress for $33 billion to support Ukraine, a dramatic escalation of U.S. funding for the war with Russia as Ukrainian president pleaded with lawmakers to give the request swift approval. The funding request includes over $20 billion for weapons, ammunition and other military assistance as well as $8.5 billion in direct economic assistance to the Ukrainian government and $3 billion in humanitarian aid. The United States has ruled out sending its own or NATO forces to Ukraine, but Washington and its European allies have supplied weapons to Kyiv, such as drones, howitzer-heavy artillery, anti-aircraft Stinger, and anti-tank Javelin missiles. United States military aid to Ukraine is top $3 billion since Russia launched what it calls a special military operation to demilitarize Ukraine and protect it from fascists. Meanwhile, the long table Russian President Vladimir Putin famously used when hosting a string of world leaders prior to the invasion of Ukraine was back yesterday. In a televised meeting with United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres, Putin struck a defiant tone and little interest in the UN Secretary General's proposal for a UN role in helping civilians flee the war. Russia, as one of the founding countries of the United Nations and a permanent member of the Security Council, has always supported this universal organization. And we believe that it is not just universal, but unique in its kind. There is no such organization in the international community, and we strongly support the principles on which it is based, and we intend to do so in the future. It is clear that there are two different positions on what is happening in Ukraine. According to the Russian Federation, what is taking place is a special special military operation with the objectives that were announced. According to the UN, in line with the resolutions passed by the General Assembly, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a violation of its territorial integrity and against the Charter of the United Nations. And that was United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres and previous Russian President Vladimir Putin through an interpreter. While in a separate meeting, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, blamed the United States for the war.
3: This was happening as a result of the actions of the U.S. and its allies and the unipolar world. As for our geopolitical sphere, it was done in the interest of containing Russia. And to that end, for many
0: years, Ukraine has been used as a springboard to restrain our country. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, in the discussions with Putin, uh, in the discussions, Putin mentioned Kosovo, a breakaway region that was once part of Serbia that declared independence in 2008 without consulting the Serbian government. Guterres noted that the United Nations didn't recognize Kosovo, but Putin brushed that aside and turned back to Mariupol. He said military operations there had ended and denied that humanitarian corridors were not functioning, although Ukraine says Russia is continuing to conduct strikes in Mariupol and refusing to let civilians leave the city. Putin also accused Ukrainian forces inside the steel plant of using civilians as a human shield. In related news, Biden is rejecting the idea that Russia's war in Ukraine could grow into a larger proxy conflict between Moscow and the United States and NATO allies that may even bring the world closer to nuclear confrontation. He blamed Russian authorities for exaggerating the speculations of a
4: larger war. The true, they do concern me because it shows the desperation that Russia is feeling about their abject failure in being able to do what they set out to do in the first instance. And so um, it uh, I think it's more of a reflection, not of the truth, but of their failure. And so instead of saying that the uh, the Ukrainians equipped with some capability to resist Russian uh, forces. Uh, are doing this they've got to say tell their people the united states and all of nato is engaged in in taking out russian troops and tanks etc so it it's number one it's an excuse for their failure but number two it's also if they really mean it it's it's a it's no no one should be making idle comments about the use of nuclear weapons or the possibility of the need to use that, it's irresponsible.
5: How concerned are you that they may start to act accordingly, even if you disagree?
4: We are prepared for whatever they do. What options do you have to ensure Poland and Bulgaria have sufficient supplies of gas? First of all, as you know, mm-hmm. um, Poland has indicated they have significant reserves of gas that they have planned for, as does not as much, but as does Bulgaria. And we have worked with our allies from Japan on to say that we may divert our sale of the natural gas that we're sending to those countries and divert it directly to uh, to uh, uh, Poland and uh, and Bulgaria. So I, you know, that's as much as I can tell you right now.
0: President Biden. Yesterday, Russia cut off gas supplies to Bulgaria and Poland. Meanwhile, the UK's foreign minister, Liz Truss, called for even more weapons to be sent to Ukraine. The world
5: should have done more to deter the invasion, and we will never make that same mistake again. Some argue that we shouldn't provide heavy weapons for fear of provoking something worse. But my view is that inaction would be the greatest provocation. Heavy weapons, tanks, aeroplanes, Digging deep in our inventories, ramping up production. We need to do all of this. Our sanctions have already seen Russia facing its first external debt default for a century. And we need to go further. There must be nowhere for Putin to fund this appalling war. And that means cutting off oil and gas imports once and for all.
0: And there's the UK Foreign Minister, Liz Truss. The Foreign Secretary's latest remarks in a speech at Mansion House in London reflect a desire by some in the West to aim high so that Ukraine enters any possible future talks about a political settlement to the conflict with the best negotiating hand possible. Russia's President Putin warned earlier today that any country meddling in Ukraine would be met with a lightning fast response that was read by many as a threat to use nuclear weapons. And in a sign that there's more to the story than meets the eye, a former Marine arrested and sentenced to nine years in Russia for allegedly assaulting a Moscow police officers back in the United States one day after he was swapped for a Russian drug trafficker. Trevor Reed was swapped in Turkey uh, yesterday for Konstantin Yaroshenko, who had been serving a 20-year prison sentence in a cocaine trafficking conspiracy case. Reed's parents, Pamela and Joseph Reed, say they've spoken to their son and he's doing much better.
5: Last phone call that we got from Trevor, we've had two today. So the first phone call we got, um, he did not sound like himself. He was very subdued and we were hyped up and all excited and kind of expected him to be excited as well, but he wasn't. So I don't know if it was just shock or if it was too early in the morning for him or whatever, but he was not his normal self. So that kind of concerned us. Uh, but later in the afternoon, we got a second phone call and, uh, you know, he must have eaten and had some fluids in him, and he was his normal self. But he was happy-go-lucky, and he's, you know, he still looks terrible, but he sounded better. He sounded more like himself. He was cracking jokes and talking, um, you know, for a few minutes, and so he, he was more like Trevor. When,
1: when, they, when these foreign countries or uh, terrorist groups take an American, they don't care whether you're a Democrat or, or a Republican. Or Republican. Yeah. You're an American, and uh, we need to stand together. That's what Americans do. When somebody attacks us, we come together. And uh, that's what they've done in our son's case, and we want the president to do that, and not just this president, all presidents, to do that for all Americans in this situation. Um, and but we're so thankful for President Biden meeting with us, and then taking this swift action after meeting with him. We believe that he probably saved our son's life.
5: I mean, uh, we're we're excited. Yeah. We know he's on the plane, but I think we're really gonna it's gonna really hit us when we get to put our arms around him and hug him.
0: Pamela and Joseph Reed, parents of Trevor Reed, recently released from a Russian prison. The United States government described Reed as unjustly detained and pressed for his release. His family asserted his innocence and expressed concerns about his deteriorating health, which included coughing up blood and a hunger strike. And back in the United States, Harvard University released a report that confronts the institution with its reliance on slavery. The 134-page report was released yesterday it also has two appendices. The report found that enslaved people lived on the Cambridge, Massachusetts campus and the president's residence and were part of the fabric of daily life, although Harvard's slaves were almost invisible. The Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court found slavery unlawful in 1783. The report says Harvard presidents and other leaders, as well as its faculty and staff, enslaved more than 70 individuals and benefited from slavery through its connections with southern planters well into the 19th century. A descendant of slaves who lived labored for harvard is roberta wolf to learn that my ancestors were slaves is very shocking
5: and it's difficult and overwhelming to understand why this happened my name is roberta wolf i'm 79 years old i'm a descendant of dobby kuba and tony Vaso from the henry longfellow house at cambridge mass they were enslaved by the Vaso family they helped build harvard university Later in life, they were given money to help build their own homes, which they owned two homes that were close to Harvard University. Both homes later in life were taken from them and given to the more elite people that were coming in. At this time, even with the money that Harvard is giving to help out to try to rectify the situation, I still feel that um, they, they need to do more. They need to get more people of color going to college, help them out. So the atonement, I guess it's called
0: the atonement, but they need to do more to help the students. Roberto Wolf is a descendant of slaves who labored for Harvard. In related news, Harvard faculty members played a role in disseminating bogus theories of racial differences that were used to justify racial segregation and to underpin Nazi Germany's extermination of undesirable populations. The report added that in the 19th century, Harvard had begun to amass human and anatomical specimens, including the bodies of enslaved people, that would, in the hands of the university's prominent scientific authorities, become central to the promotion of so-called race science at Harvard and other American. American institutions. And finally, President Joe Biden granted the first three pardons of his term. He's giving clemency to a Kennedy-era Secret Service agent from Chicago, 86-year-old Abraham Bolden Sr., the first black man to guard a U.S. president. He was appointed to President John F. Kennedy's Secret Service detail in 1961 when he was 26 years old. According to President Kennedy once introduced him as the Jackie Robinson of the Secret Service, a reference to the first African-American to play Major League Baseball in the modern era. In 1964, Abraham Bolden was fired from the Secret Service after being charged with trying to sell a government file in exchange for a $50,000 bribe. He denied the allegations, asserting he was being framed for attempting to expose misconduct within the agency. Bolden was pardoned this week, along with two people convicted on drug-related charges in Texas and Georgia, but who went on to become pillars in their community. Betty Jo Bogans, a 51-year-old woman from Houston who served seven years in prison for attempting to transport drugs for her boyfriend and accomplice, neither of whom faced charges. And 52-year-old Dexter Eugene Jackson from Athens, Georgia, who partners with schools to employ youth at his cell phone repair company two decades after he was charged with letting pot dealers use his pool hall to sell drugs. Biden also commuted the sentences of 75 others for nonviolent drug-related convictions. The White House announced the clemencies as it launches a series of job training and reentry programs for those in prison or recently released. Meanwhile, New York State plans to reserved the first 100 retail cannabis licenses for people with marijuana-related convictions. This is music to the ears of New York of a New York couple eager to open a recreational marijuana dispensary. 44-year-old Eladio Guzman spent two years in jail for selling drugs. He missed the birth of his first child. He works now as a union steam fitter. His wife, Melissa Guzman, witnessed the arrest of several relatives. Her uncle spent a decade in jail and was later deported. Because the couple qualifies as social equity applicants, They're working to get a marijuana dispensary license. They say owning a small business would provide a better future for their children. And while towns and villages are deciding on whether to allow marijuana dispensaries within their borders, veterinarians are expressing concerns and sending out warnings about pot and pets. Columbia journalism student David Marquise reports.
3: Louis the Miniature Poodle is normally an energetic dog. He's got wavy cream-colored fur and little button eyes. He jumps up and down when he sees you. But a few weeks ago, Louise's owner, Amy Singer, got a text from her dog sitter that the poodle wasn't acting quite right.
1: And then I went to pick him up at daycare around, uh, it was just a little after 10, and she carried him out and he was just like a rag. He wasn't moving, he was really heavy. Clearly something was wrong.
3: Singer, who works at Columbia, worried that it was something Louie ate off the street
1: you know there's like rat poison out here there's all sorts of stuff and he he's like a little hoover he'll eat anything
3: so she brought Louis straight to the vet's office where he got an unexpected diagnosis
1: the vet called and she said that they thought that he ate a a pot gummy
3: inedible perhaps off the sidewalk oftentimes gummies are in the same shape and packaging as dog treats and apparently this is a common problem in states like california and colorado Rates of accidental cannabis poisoning in dogs rose dramatically after legalization. The symptoms can vary in dogs. In general, they're similar to the high of a human stoner. They might flop down on the floor and lie around, their pupils might dilate, or they might get anxious. And uniquely for dogs, dribbling urine is a telltale sign. But Dr. Matt Miller from Gotham Veterinary Center on the Upper West Side says that the symptoms can also be the opposite.
2: Where rather than being really low energy, there's hyperactivity that's been seen and increased body temperature, increased heart rate, um, and even seizures.
3: In rare cases, it might warrant emergency medical care. But Miller says that for the most part, weed on its own doesn't make dogs critically ill.
2: THC itself has a very high uh, lethal dose. Some people don't even think it's possible for a dog to die with THC alone. Just your average 12-pound Shih Tzu would need to eat um, hundreds of an average joint.
3: Since cannabis ingestion usually isn't deadly, emergency veterinarians focus on alleviating discomfort. Dogs might get IV fluids to treat dehydration or medicine to relieve nausea. But dog owners, especially in Riverside Park next to a university campus, say they're being more vigilant about what might have been accidentally dropped on the ground. Is that something you're concerned about or not Not really?
5: Yes, I'm, I am because I've got a retriever and she's a street licker. And I've known dogs that, are, that, that have gotten sure. sick. I'm concerned about it only because my dog will eat anything that is near her mouth. I think it scares the owner very much. You know, their dog's just kind of lying around and blissed out and wanting Cheetos. Others weren't too nervous. I have some concerns about the impact of cannabis legalization, but not regarding
3: the dogs. As for Louis, he spent the night at the vets, and by the next day, Amy Singer says he was back to his usual self. He sure seemed like it when I saw him a few days later. He was hopping up and down on his hind legs, and he eagerly gobbled up some non-psychoactive treats out of my hand. David Marquez, Columbia Radio News.
0: Thanks, David. And that's some of the news for Thursday, April 28, 2022. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineer Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul Rienzo Thanks for listening. A program note, I'm on assignment for the news and will return after next week. You can still enjoy the news at 6 p.m., which will be hosted by Rebecca Miles in my absence.